0: Well, uh, it's great to be here again Thank you for all coming Thank you all for coming Uh, I just um, want to say, first of all I really appreciate your graciousness toward me I know I do carry on sometimes Like a pork chop in a synagogue As we sometimes say back home And uh, I do get a bit carried away I hope that's all right. Uh, But I can't help it I'm I'm just a rock star (laughs) No, I'm actually neither a prophet Nor the son of a prophet Um, So I just appreciate uh, the fact that you've been so gracious, And, and do let me say, I have tried to do my best, but I'm a human being, I'm going to make mistakes. We all have blind spots, and the thing about blind spots is you don't know you have them, or at least you know you have them, but you don't know where they are. So do feel free to weigh this stuff up, right? You need to go back and search the scriptures like those noble people of Berea to see if these things are so, and if they are... Then it's not because of what I've said It's because of the truth of the Lord And we need to honour him in submitting to them So thank you for that Thank you for your generosity and grace Uh, My good wife was saying to me You know Rick we've been honouring some people Like the musicians and the sound folk But there's one group that uh, I probably should honour In fact I certainly should honour Whom I don't think we've mentioned And that's the prayer team Who have been out in that prayer tent uh, Faithfully praying First thing in the morning Through the afternoon It sounds a bit odd to applaud them, but hey, what the heck. Let's do that, shall we? So, would you like to stand as we read two texts? This one you've heard before, ably handled by Sam on his first night. So I'm deeply in his shadow, but here we go. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. A little bit later on, this is John speaking. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. A little bit later on, as Jesus is coming up out of the water. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful. So we're continuing our, talk, our talks on the Trinity. And Monday was just an introduction to give us a bit of the lay of the land of some of the technical discussion. And then this being a Bible study and me loving scripture. So it's really a happy you know conjunction there. We spent Tuesday looking at Elohim and Yahweh in Israel scriptures, which is what we call them now, don't we? no more old testament for us right israel scriptures okay and then we spent yesterday talking about the spirit right and his pervasive presence running all the way through and of course we finished on that cliffhanger in the middle of the water can you have cliffs in water yes you can cliffs of more i guess right that brings us of course to jesus uh, who is the one we're going to talk about this morning now you know i have to let you into a secret here i think he's absolutely amazing Uh, Jesus is awesome he's sorry humongous that's not a very technical term but I think everything else pales beside him that's an extraordinary figure and I know I've said this before but I'll never tire of saying it he not only made me and you a new creation he actually opened our eyes to see creation in entirely new ways and all this amazing flourishing that the western world now enjoys comes entirely from this guy so it really is. Yes. You've got to applaud somebody. Let's applaud him. Woo! Oh gosh. You know, we are applauding your Lord, okay? Let's try that again, shall we? Hey! Woohoo! Yes. And I know this sounds odd, but you know, I wouldn't have had my iPhone if it wasn't for him, actually. But that's another conversation. I recently heard somebody, or of somebody, who said, don't get to know Jesus by looking at the God of the Old Testament. Get to know the God of the Old Testament by looking at Jesus. Well, um, there is some truth here. In fact, Jesus himself said, to have seen me is to have seen the Father. So, yeah. But, boy, uh, this can be seriously misleading, one of the reasons is the only reason we know who Jesus is is because we already know who Yahweh is. The other thing is, um, if we're not careful, this kind of language can give unintentional, I hope, support to the notion that Jesus is the kind face of an otherwise angry God. Have you heard that? Don't, uh, I'm not going to ask you if you believe it because um, I'm going to say I think that's blasphemous. If the scriptures are right when they say, I am the Lord, I change not, then the God you're seeing in Jesus is exactly the same God whom you read about in Israel's scriptures. And it might just be our misreading of those scriptures that have resulted in a caricature of who this God is. But I don't see anything in Jesus that I don't already see in Yahweh. Remember we talked about that? This is the God who stands on the rock and lets Israel pass sentence upon him. You think I'm like those gods of Egypt? Whack me and see what happens. And he bleeds living water for them. This is the God we just celebrated in that first song, whose mercy endures forever. When Israel deserves devastating judgment, nevertheless, I am the Lord, compassionate and merciful. Right. So um, I'm a little nervous about saying don't learn about uh, Jesus through the Yahweh of Israel Scriptures, we do actually. So, with that in view, you might recall in the opening session we talked about the origin of the Trinity problem actually beginning with Jesus Himself, and we started with Paul. And in 1 Corinthians chapter eight verse six, you get this statement: "Yet for us there is one God, the Father." And then a whole series of creation phrases From whom all exist Sorry, from whom are all things And from whom we exist And one Yahweh, Jesus Christ Through whom are all things And through whom we exist Now notice that God and Lord both having creation language attached to them Now this is not just in Corinthians, and the earliest document we have, earliest Christian writing, 1 Thessalonians, I would still argue that. How does Paul begin? To the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's right there at the outset of Paul. And as we mentioned in that opening session, it's stunning that Paul doesn't argue for this. I mean, Paul's a first century Jew. There's one God and everything else is creation. And they're very careful about that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They're not multiple gods, just one. And within 20 years of Jesus' death, here's Paul saying without any argument, no hesitation whatsoever, right? One God and the Lord. And he puts Jesus right up there in the Shema. That is simply breathtaking. And he never feels any need to justify it. That's within only 20 years of Jesus' death. Jewish people have put Jesus right up there in the Shema alongside God. Now, that's just staggering. I don't know who it is you think you've come to follow. And as wonderful as Mr. Rogers is, Jesus is far more than a nice Mr. Rogers. Do you know Mr. Rogers? That's the North American reference. Hence all the blank looks coming at me from... uh... (laughs) Jesus is not just some nice wandering rabbi, some teacher. Not from the New Testament's point of view. He is, in fact, Yahweh himself among us. Now, recently, a very famous, uh, world-respected... New Testament scholar wrote a massive book on Paul and in this book he was trying to work out where Paul got his idea of Jesus somehow being the Lord from. Now a number of reviewers have pointed out it didn't go very well and I think the reason is that's because Paul did not actually invent this idea. You're going to find the origins of Jesus being the Lord in Paul. He didn't create that, he inherited it it's already been the testimony of the earliest Christians whom he's been persecuting. And as I suggested earlier, this goes all the way back to the earliest followers of Jesus and they didn't invent it either. I think it came from Jesus himself. Now, it just so happens that I'm someone who likes Mark. If you know anything about me, uh, this is where I did my work. Uh, I'm not going to argue this, but you can understand if you're a Jewish person and you're talking about a new deliverance, so you've been in Egypt and you had to be brought out of Egypt, and now Israel's in exile, you have to come out of exile, you're not going to talk about a new Bastille Day. You're going to talk about a new exodus. And do notice that, right? And this is picking up, by the way, on the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who says, yes, you're in Babylon, you're going to have a new exodus, just like you had from Egypt. And just remember this. Who revealed themselves during the first exodus? Elohim as Yahweh. Remember that, the creator, but also the one who stands on the rock, the one who shows mercy. And you've got to keep in mind that when you're talking about the life of Jesus, that's happening in the context of a new exodus. And if you're Jewish, you know what that means. This is not just Elohim. This is Yahweh the same Yahweh they saw in the book of Exodus. Now, why am I picking Mark? Well, I think it's unanimously agreed that it's the earliest gospel. And I want to argue that it's actually written by the same John Mark that you meet throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but let me go through it quickly. And if it's too quickly, then you can come back and listen to the tape a bit later on. Tape shows how old I am. MP3, sorry. How do I get here? Well, by the time Mark writes, there's probably about 7,000 Christians in the entire Roman Empire of some 25 million. I can't argue for that number here, but it's not a lot. Of those 7,000, only about 10% are literate. So now we're down to a potential pool of 700 people. How many of those 700 are well enough known simply to be called Mark without any kind of surname? Just like Paul or Peter. I want to suggest you the reason Mark works is because everyone knows who this Mark is. And the only one who really fits that, who has some connection with eyewitness testimony, which is really what the early church is concerned with, read the story of Acts when they replaced Judas. The person who replaces Judas has got to be someone who was with them from the time of the baptism all the way to the ascension. And then you realise, oh my goodness, it wasn't just the twelve. There's a pool of other people who were with Jesus and the 12 from the very beginning all the way to his ascension. And why are they concerned about one of those people? Because they were eyewitnesses. They were there for the whole, pardon me, enchilada. They saw the whole thing. So I want to say if they're that concerned about eyewitnesses, someone like Mark has to have close connection with eyewitnesses. And that, I would argue, is the John Mark of the New Testament. He's the only one who really fits the bill. Now, the other thing I add to this is, well, how do you know that this particular gospel is connected with Mark, with this particular Mark? Well, stop and think about it for a minute. Only 10% of the population have any kind of literacy. Well, that's probably a bit inaccurate. Some people have, lots of people have some kind of literacy. But truly literate people, only about 10%, they tend to be wealthy elites. They're the people who buy books, and there is a flourishing book trade. The problem is this, books are scrolls and when you have more than one, how do you know what each scroll is about? You want to flick it open every time Have Ever try to flick through a scroll? A bit hard to do. They knew that, they'd attach tags to them. So I'm going to suggest you've got these early elite people becoming Christians, they're the ones who are likely to buy copies of Gospels and when they put it in their box, they're going to put a tag on it. That's why Mark's name is not actually on the inside, but it's attached to the Gospel through a tag from the very beginning. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because I'm trying to build a case as to why you should trust this, this account by John Mark. What do we know about him? Well, the first thing we know is he's bilingual. Johannes is his Jewish name. Marcus is his Greek name. He's a bilingual Jew. We know that his family is apparently well-to-do and he's present both in Jerusalem and in Antioch. How do we know that? Well, first of all, where does Peter go when he gets out of prison? He goes to Mark's mum's place. So apparently her house is big enough for the earliest Christians to meet in Jerusalem. Imagine that. You're sitting in Mark's mum's place. And you've got these people who are actually alive when Jesus was around. And Peter sometimes visits. And you get to listen to Peter talk about what happened when Jesus was alive. You get this, just face to face from Peter over the hummus and whatever. Okay, And if you want to learn about the resurrection, well, mum's got some friends. And who are those friends? The very women who went to the tomb. They come and visit. And over the olives and the dip, they talk about what it was like on that first Easter morning. You imagine that? That's this guy, Mark. He's hearing all of this. And that's not all. He's got an uncle called Barney. Uncle Barney, right? who also happens to be pretty wealthy, and he's associated with the church in Antioch and one of the first people to sell land to give the money to the church. And what do you know about this bunny? He's the one who gets Paul. Paul's the one who leads the mission, who does a lot of thinking about what this Jesus means for the Gentile world. And Mark gets invited along with them. Now, Mark kind of blows it and uh, ends up leaving halfway through the mission, and it creates just a wee bit of tension. See, there's another Irish kind of interjection now. Working on this, right? Um, But even though they have this problem, nevertheless, in Paul's last imprisonment, he sends for Mark, that Mark might come to him. So I want to suggest to you that the guy who writes this gospel, John Mark, is as close as you can get to the bona fide real deal. Peter comes to his home he knows the women who were there at the tomb he gets Paul this is about as good as you can get actually now I'm going to argue that not because I'm a Christian I just think that's what makes the most historical sense if you want a great picture of Jesus read Mark and apparently it's so great that Matthew and Luke follow him and Matthew's a disciple and Mark wasn't you ever thought about that? Why would Matthew, who's a disciple, follow Mark, who wasn't? And I think the answer is behind Mark stands Peter. And Peter, as you know, which is that Aramaic term, is the of fromage. He's the big cheese among the 12, right? He's always at the first of every list. And in the inner circle, he's always mentioned first as well. And Matthew, following Mark, is the only gospel who tells us what Jesus said about Peter. Right? Rocky, upon you I will build my church. Okay? And do notice that. Peter's there when the Spirit's poured out in Acts in Jerusalem. And he's also there when the Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, bacon bits and all with Cornelius. Okay? He's part of that incredible building. Now, here's the question. Did Mark actually create the gospel? Is he the one who brought all this stuff together? interesting thought if he was why don't we hear more about him in the church we don't actually and then what's Peter doing for 20 years he's wandering around preaching thinking I can hardly wait until Mark tells me what I'm doing (laughs) I know it kind of fits there. I have really no idea Mark help me you think and the moment you put it like that you realise how quickly Jesus gets left out of the equation not to be irreverent but out of those three Mark, Peter and Jesus who's the clever bunny it's Jesus of course I don't think Peter invented this. He gets this from Jesus. So I think what you're getting in Mark's gospel is Peter's account of what Jesus taught him as to what Jesus was on about. All right? So all of that, bit of a justification for why I'm actually taking Mark seriously. And I really do. So who is this Jesus? Well, the first thing we know, everyone agrees, is that he's human. He's Jesus of Nazareth. This is agreed on all sides, especially by his opponents. No one suggests otherwise. And even when taking into account some of the strange things he does, his mighty deeds, they still identify him in human terms. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. He's some kind of prophet, right? Notice no one says Messiah at that point. And that's critical because the stuff Jesus does are not connected with the Messiah. Got that? It's just important to get that around in your head. You probably know it already, but it's nice just to reaffirm that. The Messiah does not heal people. He does not calm the sea. He does not walk on the water. He does not cast out demons. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. And that's why nobody says, oh, he's the Messiah. No, he's not. Not a little boy. Whoops, that kind of popped in, didn't it, from somewhere. Okay, Just shows how, whoops, I should just move on very quickly. That didn't happen. Just ignore that. Um, Now, notice then that even though Mark, starts his gospel with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you can remember in that first session, that's exactly where John's gospel finishes. Even though he starts with the Logos, John finishes with that, uh, with that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's where John finishes. He didn't invent that. Mark starts his gospel that way. But even though he starts by talking about Jesus being the Christ he immediately connects it and grounds it in two prophecies and Sam pointed this out it's a combination of two texts Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 poor old Jerome when he read this he got very embarrassed because Mark says in verse 2 Isaiah and Jerome's going oh dear excuse me Mark you know wonderful blessed son you actually got it wrong <laughs> you quoted Malachi uh, no not really there's something else going on there but my point here is to point out as you probably know, that neither Malachi nor Isaiah are actually concerned about the Messiah. You won't find a sausage of a Messiah in Malachi. Did I just say that? I think, it's, I, think I did. It's late in the week. Watch out. Tomorrow promises to be who knows what. Right? Now, it's interesting because a number of years ago, I was invited to meet with a group of Jewish Holocaust survivors and other... Jewish folk, in a Holocaust museum in a suburb called St. Kilda in Melbourne. And they wanted me to talk about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. So I turned up and, you know, a bit like Daniel in the lion's den or Christian in the Colosseum or something. And uh, so I got up and actually the first thing I said to them was, look, I'm really serious about this, but I do want to thank you. Uh, Because you and I both know from reading your prophets that Israel wasn't always faithful. But the fact remains that while my parents were running around half naked, or at least my descendants long past, in the forest of Ireland or Europe, you were the one nation worshipping the one true God. And I want to thank you for that because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And I really meant that. I think it kind of disarmed them a little bit. And then the next comment was like unto it and I said you know this is going to be a very short conversation because as you and I both know Isaiah says almost nothing about the Messiah and there was stunned silence and everyone burst out laughing right? Uh, because if you've actually read the text you'll know the only person called Messiah in the book of Isaiah is Cyrus the only one called Mashiach and they know that and they know that we Christians sometimes do some really odd things with Isaiah reading things into that text that are just not there okay so that was the laughter because they'd come loaded for bear as the Americans say ready to kind of shoot down all of these pseudo arguments and I said yeah I agree with you <laughs> kind of the ring, doesn't it and we had a wonderful time talking about Isaiah itself and uh, we got to this servant figure and now you know if you've got 120 Jewish people in the room there's 150 opinions right and I love that about them <laughs> and it's just it's you know it's going on it's a fantastic conversation and all this animation and and this old guy yells out from the back of the room, the only way we'd know who the servant of Yahweh is is that he would never die. So he's coming from the Pharisaic tradition, right? Resurrection really matters. And I just, the room kind of went quiet and I said, well, look, um, if you'll forgive me, that's exactly what we believe about your Jewish Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. Well, it was on again <laughs> and they said afterwards, oh, next time you're back in Melbourne, please come and see us, right? But uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make with that long story is not just to fill in time, which I don't really need to do. Uh, But the critical thing is this, folks. Neither Malachi nor Isaiah are talking about the coming of the Messiah. And of course not. We just spent some time over the last couple of days talking about who it is who comes and delivers his people. And it ain't no Messiah. Who is it? It's Yahweh Elohim. He's the one who comes. So when you read this text, Mark is telling you, you'll never get Jesus as Messiah until you understand that he is first and foremost Yahweh among us. I have to tell you, that's a relatively new idea. For nearly 2,000 years, that's not been seen in the church. And the reason I think it's not been seen is because we keep talking about the Old Testament and we don't take these scriptures seriously enough to really read them and to see what's going on. Now, This is stunning. Right? The way of the Lord. That's the coming of Yahweh. Right? And you can see why you get this in Paul. Jesus being understood as Christ is grounded in, first of all, him being Yahweh. And there it is. One Lord comes first and then Jesus Christ. Paul gets this. Starts with Jesus being Yahweh and then only as Christ. Sorry if I've annoyed you back there. Is that agreement maybe? Perhaps that's that's all, um, I think, a prophetic word or something. Wonderful. Thank you. Now, have a look at what goes on here. Next, we meet John. There he is kind of snacking on his uh, little whatever it is they have. Ever tried those things, locusts? No, I haven't, but apparently um, quite delicious from the look in his face, or well, maybe not, maybe he's not quite sure. Either way, um, we meet John, and what's John talking about? Well, as Sam helpfully pointed out, his clothing tells you something. He's Elijah, and as Sam also noted that Malachi said, the messenger who was going to come was going to be none other than Elijah. And that's who John is. And what does John speak about? And you know this, by the way, the Elijah in Malachi is not preparing for the Messiah. He's preparing for the Lord who's about suddenly to come to his temple. Now you know why the Gospels end up in Jerusalem in the temple. That's what the Lord is meant to do. The very Lord that Elijah John is proclaiming and preparing for. And then you hear John's preaching. Stronger than I. Well, if you know Israel's scriptures, who characteristically is the mighty one of Israel? It's not the Messiah. It's not Moses. It's not a prophet. It's Yahweh, who made there his mighty arm when he brought Israel out of Egypt. It's Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, who delivers his people. And that's all Exodus stuff. And then what's he going to do? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who baptizes with the Spirit? Not the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah has a special anointing of the Spirit, but he doesn't pour it out. Moses doesn't do that. In fact, go back and, and remember that story we looked at when we talked about the Spirit, where the elders right, actually get the Spirit. It doesn't say, and Moses poured out the Spirit upon the elders. It said, God said to him, I'm going to take some of that Spirit from you. It's God who does the taking and the pouring. Only the Lord God baptizes people with the Spirit. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, you'll see Jesus do this. Acts 2.33, right? Talks about uh, Jesus being the one who pours out the Spirit. Luke 24, John 16, Jesus is the one who does this, and that's Yahweh stuff. Now, I think that explains why fully half of the next eight chapters in Mark are focused on Jesus' mighty deeds. They're there to tell you who Jesus is. He's in the desert, and it's funny how that little story doesn't really have an outcome, right? He's tempted, and then you hear there's angels, and you think, what's actually gone on there? Only later on in Mark do you realise what's happened. And it's when Jesus is being accused by the Jewish leaders of casting out demons so effortlessly because he's actually in league with Satan, Jesus says, No, that makes no sense at all, but what this is, I can do it because I've already bound the strong man. Now, who's the strong man?" He's Satan. You think about that? This is long before Jesus is on the cross and he's bound the strong man. Ever tried to bind someone that you haven't already defeated? Yes, a thought, isn't it? Maybe explore that some other time. We can't do it this morning. Now, where else would Jesus have defeated and bound Satan if not at the temptation? And I think that's what Matthew and Luke are talking about. How does Jesus defeat Satan? Through his character. He will not use his power for himself. He will not manipulate. He will not coerce. You want to be involved in spiritual warfare? Do those things. That's what enables him to defeat Satan. And you notice that Satan never turns up again to confront Jesus face to face ever in the rest of his ministry. Luke says, oh yes, he departed looking for a more opportune time, but it never comes. Doesn't mean Satan can't use other people. He does, but actually he never confronts Jesus again. Why? Because he's been done and dusted. And that's why when Jesus confronts demons, it's over before it starts. Now, with that kind of background... Who is it in Israel's scriptures and in Israel's tradition who defeats Satan? It's not the Messiah. No prophet does this. There is only one who defeats Satan. And that's Yahweh. And now he's Jesus doing it. You see this in that controversy that we just talked about. Jesus warns them. What you're saying against me, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There's really nothing like this close identification between a person and the Spirit anywhere, on Jesus, anywhere else in Israel's scriptures. This looks just like Yahweh's close identification with his Spirit now that's being applied to Jesus. And that's exactly what that unclean spirit in the synagogue recognises maybe just kicking back to have another relaxing Sunday while the sermon drones on, right? or Sabbath as it might be, if you're Jewish and you are, you're in the synagogue. And then this guy gets up to speak and suddenly, pardon me, all hell breaks loose. Right? And then listen to the question. Have you come to destroy us? That's not a messianic question. That's a Yahweh question. The unclean spirit knows this. Then the man with leprosy. If you are willing, you are able. Now, that language of being willing and able is entirely Yahweh language. Only Yahweh is able to do whatever he wills, including healing leprosy. The paralyzed man put down through the roof. What does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. And immediately all the professors like me start muttering in our hearts, that's blasphemy. How can you say that, right? Only God can do this. And notice they don't say only the high priest, only the Messiah. They don't say only the son of man. Don't do any of that kind of stuff, right? Only God can do this. And you know what's stunning? Jesus reads their hearts something that only God can do and asks the question. And then he demonstrates that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now we know who has authority in heaven to forgive sins, don't we? But here he is on earth in Jesus. So some people hear the son of man language and they say that's about Jesus' humanity. Uh, I don't think so. It's the label Jesus uses to pour into it God stuff. Again, that's another conversation. The bridegroom. The Messiah is not the bridegroom. The Messiah doesn't marry Israel. Only Yahweh does that. Go read Isaiah. Read the rabbis; they know Yahweh is Israel's husband. Go back and read Hosea. That's Yahweh language. We've already mentioned, or maybe we haven't. Um, no, I'll go to this one now. Calm storms and it storms and drowns legion. Yes, we did talk about this back in 2013. Remember that? They're in the boat with Jesus. Big storm terrified of the storm they wake him up you know we do not presume to come to this shore sleeping bench trusting our face, that kind of thing probably not you know wake up do something and he sees as a morning person or did he say coffee sorry don't mean to be irreverent, but and he does say something doesn't he like shut up it's that blunt and it does and they're more afraid of him than the storm and immediately after they come to this seashore and you meet the metatron of the demonic world. Right, you guys really do need to get out a bit more, don't you? That's, um, that's a movie reference. <laughs> Your kids know this and you obviously don't. So uh, family counselling for everybody. Eh? <laughs> and this you know, legion, this massive demonic host comes running up to Jesus just in this total mess and confusion and bows down before him. And he wants to go into the pigs, and pigs are normally associated with idolatry. So into the pigs they go, and they drown in the sea. And then you know the question, where have you seen someone tell the sea what to do? And immediately after, a military host is drowned therein. Where have you seen that? Not in the Old Testament, but in Israel scriptures. That's what Yahweh does. It doesn't end there walks on the water and these wonderful paragons upon whom the church is going to be built go oh it's a ghost only Yahweh does that and then immediately after he feeds them in the desert come on, come on, come on or have you seen someone exercise authority over the sea and then feed people in the desert who do you think this is? where have you seen this before? I have to say, folks, this is probably the most important interpretive principle you will learn when you're reading the New Testament because we're not dealing with philosophy, we're dealing with history and persons. You keep asking, where have I seen someone, a person, do this before? Not a disembodied idea, but a person, Yahweh. Where have you seen this before? And it's running all the way through the Gospels. We've already talked about the Passover meal. Who in the world would even dream... Of touching this feast by saying, No, that Passover thing Moses kind of instituted, Yahweh told him to, or about the Exodus. Ah, no, now it's about me. Oh, and I'm gonna change the menu as well. Can you just imagine how stunning that is? And it's not as if you've got different rabbis wandering around Israel doing this. You know, Rabbi Tarfon occasionally calms a storm. Um, you know, maybe Rabbi Jacanan turns water into wine somewhere, and um, occasionally Rabbi Hillel binds Satan. No one does this. All of these really bizarre stories are all clustered around this one individual. Explain that to me. I think the best explanation is he actually did this. That's why it's there. You wouldn't invent this stuff. No one's expecting anyone to walk on the water. No one's expecting that. That's why they just don't know what to do with Jesus. They did not invent this. Can you see that? It's is so out of left field. I think the only explanation is he must have done stuff like this. So the first half of Mark's gospel, he's falling over himself, trying to help us see who this is. Jesus is none other than Yahweh, the Yahweh whom Malachi and Isaiah pointed toward. And you see this in Matthew's sermon, last line in the slide in front of you. Sermon on the Mount, right? They go up the mountain, sounds very like what? Mount Sinai, except the difference is there's no fence. Remember in the second day, we talked about Moses going up and no one else was to come up. In this mountain, there's no fence around the bottom. Everyone can come up. And they actually get to look on Jesus and they do not die. Instead, they find eternal life. And then he starts talking about the blessings. It's wonderful to see how that starts. He said, okay, is there anyone here who keeps the law perfectly, has never missed a Sunday, and has run the Sunday school for 55 years without fail? Anyone done that? No one? Okay, well, you're all finished, right? You're not going to make it into the kingdom. Is that how he begins? How does he begin? Is there anyone here who knows they can't do this? anyone anyway, here who knows they don't have the resources to be the kind of person God wants them to be. And Jesus then says to those of you who are poor in spirit, congratulations, this is for you. Not that. How different that is from the first time when Moses goes up the mountain. But it's the same Yahweh, showing exactly that mercy and compassion that we saw associated with the rock and the golden calf incident. Uh, there was actually a reason I chose those two stories early on in case you're wondering but there's good reason to do so remarkable and speaking of the golden calf and the rock that mercy and that compassion I am the Lord the Lord causing my goodness to go before you merciful and compassionate who's the one person in the gospels to whom People come asking for mercy. It's Jesus. Yeah, and that kind of gets us to ask a question Do people come to our congregations because they know they'll find mercy? A friend of mine at Regent used to say When people are running from a false view of God, are they further from Him or closer to Him? What if for some of us this gospel's become more the grammar of good and evil and legalism and guilt and shame and control and we think Northern Irish people don't want anything of that, they're godless but what actually if they know more about God than we do? I'm not trying to tell that to, I'm not doing that to beat anybody up here. That's not what this is about folks. Sometimes we think the gospel's lost its power. I'm sorry for this little trite statement. I don't think the gospel's lost its power. I think sometimes what happens is I lose the gospel. I miss what this is on about. Wonderful. Who's the only one who shows compassion in the gospels? That's Jesus. And who does that, especially at the Exodus? Well, that's Yahweh. That's what he's known for, right? So, who is this Jesus among us? First and foremost, I am the Lord. Now, you're going to find this in John's Gospel as well. We'll talk about the Logos in just a moment, or maybe uh, see if we have enough time. Maybe the first thing tomorrow morning. But look how John begins: "The Word became flesh and dwelt." What a horrible translation! Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. It's getting a bit need to calm down here. Take a breath. Uh, probably not as felicitous as it could have been. Right? Much better to say tabernacle because that's what the word means. It means tented. And where have you seen someone tent among us and seen glory full of grace and truth? Where have you seen that? Help me now. It's not a rhetorical question. Altogether now, it's the Exodus. That moment when Yahweh revealed his character. That wonderful story of Nathaniel. Nathaniel turns up and Jesus says, oh, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Oh, I saw you under the tree. Oh, you're the Messiah, the King of Israel. Jesus goes, oh boy, boy, if that rocked your world, wait until you see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what's that a reference to? That's Jacob at Bethel. And he dreams and sees the angels ascending and descending. And he realized, he finally woke up and said, I did not know that God was in this place. John's saying that about Jesus. He is Bethel. And Israel did not know that God was in that place. And that's why later on, he says, destroy the temple, referring to himself. When you get to tabernacles and they're pouring water out upon the altar and they believed under that altar, you know, that rock that God stood on and was smitten. In some Jewish tradition, that rock went all the way through the desert and sat up right on top of Mount Zion and was there under the altar. And that in Ezekiel's vision, out from under that altar would come rivers of living water. And when they're celebrating this in tabernacles, the last great day of the feast, pouring out water, this voice booms across the crowd. If anyone thirst, let them come to me and out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, which had not yet been given. He is that rock. And hence that reference in the previous session to blood and water coming out of Jesus' side. He's the rock. He's the smitten rock. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10, Christ was that following rock. Not that Jesus is a piece of granite, but he's pointed to the fact that when Yahweh stood on the rock, he identifies with it. And Jesus is the Yahweh who bleeds living water for his people. Those wonderful I am statements before Abraham was, I am. He promises to send a comforter. Remember John the Baptist preaching? he will baptize with the spirit. That's a Yahweh thing. Yahweh does that. And then he says, and as the father raises the dead, so too the son will give life to whom he wills. That's Yahweh language. And it's true that God is the one who raises Jesus from the dead, but have you ever read that first temple reference carefully? When Jesus says, destroy this temple, what does he say? And in three days he doesn 't say the Father will raise it up in three days, I will raise it up All right that 's john it 's not just the Father who raises Jesus from the dead right at that, that that first explicit mention of Jesus being the temple, I will raise it up interesting right? so what is this? help us with in terms of Trinitarian thinking. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's a question mark there. What do you think the question mark's there? What's missing from that confession? About whom have I been talking? I heard it out there somewhere. No, it's an iPhone, is it? No, no, voice. Some thought it thundered. Yahweh, well done you, right? That's what's missing. And the amazing thing is, look where it sits in this image. You can't really see it here because this thing's kind of not going to show up on that screen. But the red box might help you. Look where they put Yahweh. Up with the Father. That's not what the Gospels tell us. The Gospels tell us that's who Jesus is. That's where we begin. Well, what's the problem here? And this is where things are getting a little bit interesting and probably it's a good moment to finish on. So we're almost done in this section. We'll come back and talk about some other stuff a bit later on in the next session. But This is probably a good bit to reflect on. The problem with that Christological Trinitarian statement is there's no Lord. Now, the Cappadocian fathers are really bright guys, much, much sharper than I can ever be. But they drew heavily on Matthew's baptismal formula, twenty-eight nineteen, And that's fine because in Matthew, this is what Jesus says. But you want to be a little careful about this because there's no statement in Matthew that the baptismal formula is meant to be exhaustive. It doesn't say that. And furthermore, not to create too much trouble, the New Testament itself doesn't seem to be all that fussed about getting the formula right. Luke quotes Peter and simply has, you're baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Later on, Peter says, the Lord Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? Why, how is it that the guys who knew Jesus best don't get too fussed about baptismal formulas and will split churches over it? Do we know Jesus better than they did? What's going on with that? Is this some kind of left-brain Hellenistic fixation? The thing that worries me is that this fixation on the baptismal formula tends to miss out the whole front half of Matthew, which Matthew gets from Mark, and that's all about Jesus being Yahweh. Now just to finish this section I'm not against Jesus being the son of course not right? we're going to finish almost in the same place we began I hope that's alright recognise the picture some of you love that um, yeah, I actually pinched it off the web don't tell anybody but I thought I could do it because it's an educational thing Owen. And, uh, uh, and you do get this you do get the voice from heaven there's no question about that right? you are my son that's Davidic language With you, I'm well pleased. That's Isaiah's serving. You do get all of that stuff. The temptations are all about this language of if you are the Son of God, right? He gets tested on that. So, Son really, really matters. I simply want to point out to you, though, have we got a a bit of an issue here? Is it possible that we've taken language that had to do with how God spoke to His creation? Son is Israel. Son is David. And might we have taken that language that actually has to do with God and his creation and swung that up into language that God uses himself where maybe it just doesn't belong. And that's the more radical thought for the theologians among you today, which probably means I should start running about now. (laughs) But let me be clear. I really do believe there are three persons in the Trinity. No doubt about that at all. What worries me is that Yahweh is missing and that's absolutely essential to who Jesus is and then sonship language starts getting pulled up into a discourse. God never calls Yahweh his son. It just doesn't function that way. So I think basically what's happened here is there's been a little bit of a slippage and I'm just not sure I can say this is nuanced, nuancedly with as much nuance as it needs. Let me try that, okay. The language, I would argue, doesn't actually belong together and never did in Israel's story. The reason we have to deal with it is because of that jolly bloke called Jesus. Because he does both. It's in him that Yahweh and his creation come together. It's in him. It's the person Jesus He's the one that brings together two discourses that don't normally belong and puts them strongly side by side. But I don't think he ever blends them into one another. Right. They find their locus in him. All right, well, it is time for us to go. What I'd like you to take away from this is an understanding of who Jesus is. So when we sing about the Lord Jesus, we now know what we're singing about, don't we? This is none other Than Yahweh Himself among us. This is who we own as our Lord. Not some merely human Messiah, not some merely human Son, but staggeringly, completely unexpectedly, and just blew everyone else away, was the fact that somehow, mysteriously, Yahweh Himself was now present in Jesus. And that's why we worship him. That's why we give him our lives. One God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Can I pray for you? You understand? Father, I, I just. We don't know what to say. Who would have imagined that you would do something like this? That you yourself would come among us to do what we could not do? We've said that many times. Hopefully, this morning we've seen it in ways that are just more staggering than we ever imagined. There were all these promises to the Davidic son but you couldn't find a son of David who fulfilled their side of that bargain. You couldn't find a true servant Israel. So you came down among us and you did it yourself. We thank you for this. We thank you for your mercy and compassion. We thank you for your deep love. And Father, we pray that through the presence of your Holy Spirit, that this love, this mercy and compassion will be the hallmark by which your people are known, not only in Northern Ireland, but across the face of this, your creation. In Jesus' strong name, amen.